Awesome. Man, I'm exhausted just watching that. <laughs> I feel like uh, I've just lived a whole week of camp. Uh, Morgan's still doing laundry, I think, from our two kids. Uh, really gross clothes they came home with, but that means they had a great time, right? I'm so grateful for Rachel and all you do. Uh, Brad was telling me, one of the chaperones, he said, man, Rachel is a, a, a treasure uh, for our church for what she endured uh, this week. So um, thank you so much, Rachel. And uh, yeah, our, all of our chaperones. I, I planned and I helped lead and plan 12 weeks of youth camp over 12 years as a youth pastor. And our chaperones are our heroes too. So thank you so much to chaperones. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, I, I'm, I think I don't have the energy for that anymore. I'm just uh, <laughs> glad that I'm a different age and stage now, I guess. Uh, but we want to say a special word today of welcome. We have a special guest today. Myrtle Oliver is here. She's 93 years old today, and she told her family, what I want for my birthday is to go to Woodmont Baptist Church because she watches us every Sunday on TV, and she and her family are here. Will you just wave, Myrtle? Happy birthday to you. We're so excited to have you. It's, a, it's a, a privilege having you with us. And uh, all of our longtime TV viewers, uh, we, we pray that you are encouraged every week as you hear the word of God proclaimed. And uh, we invite you to come and join us, just like Myrtle is here today, and, and be a part of what God's doing here at Woodmont. Okay, my parents have this old record player. I think it's known as a hi-fi. Is that right? A hi-fi system. It's, uh, you know, like wooden speakers, like wooden cases. And... Uh, when I was in middle school, I thought it was really lame. I was kind of in the punk rock phase, I think, uh, at that time. So I thought it was not cool. But now those are cool again, right? Like a hi-fi system, you know, hipsters would love to shell out $1,000 for something like that. So uh, the problem wasn't the hi-fi system itself. It was the record collection that my parents had. It was all like um, Steve Green. Do you know who that is? Uh, they were huge Steve Green fans. Who was like this... Christian singer, and I couldn't stand it. And uh, Sandy Patty, they had a lot of Sandy Patty records. Y'all know Sandy Patty? I thought it was super lame in, in middle school. Still not a, still not a big fan, but uh, they, had, they had one record that I actually listened to a lot uh, as I grew older and as I learned to appreciate music more. Uh, some friends of mine uh, were really into music my senior year in high school, and we joined the Franklin High Chorus. We joined the, the choir. And one of the songs that we sang uh, that year in choir was And the Glory of the Lord by some guy named George Friedrich Handel. And uh, apparently it was part of a longer oratorio uh, called Messiah uh, that was written by Handel. And uh, the, the book was written by another guy, but all the texts are from the King James Version of the Bible. And I didn't realize that uh, and the glory of the Lord is taken, the text is taken from Isaiah chapter 40. And I started to listen to this record over and over again, especially that first part where it talks about a king who would come and how the glory of the Lord would be revealed to the entire world and that beautiful promise that God would show up in person uh, on our planet and break into the world in all of his glory. And that comes from Isaiah 40, which is one of the most powerful passages in all of the Bible. It's such a rich and important text that we're actually going to take two weeks to 
to walk through it. I'm going to do verses 1 to 11 today, and then Evan is going to preach on the longer and more difficult section next week. Uh, he chose that, by the way. I didn't assign him that. Uh, it was his choice. This chapter marks a, a significant shift in the book of Isaiah. Let me just give some context and background first before we dive into this text. Remember, Isaiah lived in the second half of the 8th century. So like King Uzziah died in 740 BC. And then, you know, the Assyrians were the major power at that time. We've been talking about the Assyrian threat the whole uh, time in the first 39 chapters. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came into Israel, the northern kingdom, and completely took it over. Just wiped out the 10 tribes of Israel that had set up the northern kingdom of Israel. The two tribes that were still faithful in Judah in the south where Jerusalem was, the, the Davidic covenant people of God still there in Judah, were able to uh, withstand the Assyrian threat because of the Lord's intervention. In 701, we saw a few weeks ago how the Assyrian army showed up at Jerusalem and how Hezekiah prayed and the Lord delivered Judah from the hands of the Assyrians. The, the Lord... Uh, sent the Assyrians packing, and that would have been a great way to end the story, right? That God intervened, Hezekiah prayed, and that God swoops in to rescue his people, and they, they turn to him in worship and in gratitude, and they play their part as faithful conduit of his blessing to the rest of the world that they're supposed to be as God's chosen covenantal people, but that's not what happens. Last week, we saw how Hezekiah was seduced by his own self-importance, how he cozied up to the, the new emerging world power, these guys who show up from Babylon. And he wants to, to be friends with these guys, and he shows them everything in his palace, and they're thinking the whole time, that's going to look great in Babylon. He cozies up to these guys because he delights in the word of the Babylonians over the word of the Lord. We saw that he believed in the promise of Babylon more than he believed in the promise of the Lord. We saw that he preferred the, the false salvation that Babylon offered rather than the true salvation that the Lord offered. And so he squanders his legacy. Hezekiah, one commentator said he should have died sooner. <laughs> what a sad commentary. I hope no one says that about my life, that he should have died sooner. He really made a wreck of things at the end. But that's what happened to Hezekiah. He became the architect of disaster. His poor, selfish decisions would lead to these long-lasting, devastating consequences for the people of God. And what did he say? I heard someone gasp over here last week when we were reading it. It's so shocking. Isaiah tells him, look, dude, because of your selfishness, your sons are going to be carried off to Babylon. Everything in your house is going to become property of the Babylonians, and even the people of Judah will be carried off as slaves. And Isaiah says, what you said is great. What you said is good. <laughs> what? How could that be good? Because he says, I'll have peace in my day. I'll have security in my day. I'll die safely in my own bed, not my problem. How selfish. That, that kind of selfishness is unbelievable, except we're all kind of prone to it. We tend to, to look out for our own comfort in the present 
we, we need a supernatural awakening, a rebirth even, as the Bible says, in order to, to unbend into the grace of God, in order to care about others more than we care about ourselves, in order to get over ourselves and, and be a part of a greater good, something bigger than our culture of individualism. But Hezekiah's selfishness, again, is going to lead to this really devastating time in the history of God's people. The whole book of Lamentations is about how dark and, and how despondent uh, this time is in the lives of God's people as they are carried away to Babylon. It's not only a national disaster, it's a, a theological disaster as well. The people feel abandoned by God. They become disillusioned. They become disoriented. This is familiar maybe to you because many in our culture today feel the same way. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what, what to believe. Their, their whole construct of reality is, is just up in the air at this point. Into this situation, God speaks these words from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. My people, says your God. He speaks a word of comfort with a great promise to his people. It's a great promise that he's going to show us in Isaiah 40. You know, when I was a youth minister, I would uh, have our graduating seniors fill out a, a form that would, you know, say like, what's uh, your favorite verse, you know, what are your plans after school? And one thing I would ask them is, is what's a piece of advice that your parents would have, have given you over the years that you're going to take with you? And one girl, her dad was an engineer and he was very successful. He had uh, built his own business and he had always told her and her siblings, under promise and what? Over deliver. Under promise and over deliver. I don't think I'd heard that necessarily at that point, and I still think about that from time to time because I'm, I'm an Enneagram 7. I don't know if that means anything to you, but, but I tend to, as an enthusiast and as uh, someone who's energetic, I tend to say, yeah, 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 I'll do that. That sounds great. I want to do that. And then I'll already move on to the next thing before I have time to fulfill it. So I tend to overpromise and underdeliver. But it's so important to be a person of uh, your word, right? To be a person of character, especially for those of us who are privileged to serve in leadership. You have to back up what you say you're going to do because people will never trust you if you don't. And they can't depend on you to keep your word. And the truth is there are promises that are being made to us all the time. We live in a culture of overpromising. Every day we're bombarded with promises made by a multi-billion dollar advertising culture that is aimed squarely at separating us from our money. And they promise us that if we will obtain what they are selling, and I'm not making fun of all marketing people. I love, we market here at the church. We market, we market good things, right? Jamie's a marketing person. Marketing, we, we do branding and marketing stuff here as well. But I'm talking about people who are in this business trying to separate us from our money by promising us that if we will spend the money and obtain this thing that they're selling, then we will be happy and satisfied and fulfilled 
There are also competing truth claims out there that the world is constantly selling us on. They're constantly shouting to us, giving us some version of what they think the good life actually is. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard and then you'll have money and be happy. Find your authentic self and live out your truth with reckless abandon and you'll be happy. Maybe follow the rules and stay in your lane and you'll be happy. Project a successful and happy image on social media and show the world how happy you are and people will be jealous of you and you'll be happy. Live a life of indulgence and, and sinful pleasure. Live as free as you want and you'll be happy. The reality is that all those promises drastically under-deliver. The most important decision then that we can ever make is, is which promise are we going to trust? Who has the ability to truly under-promise and over-deliver? Sometimes, you know, the marketing stuff is an under-promise. They're underselling how great something actually is. Is that what this promise in Isaiah 40 is? We have to decide that for ourselves. Because the promise that we actually believe is life-giving and will lead to flourishing is the one that we bet our lives on. And in the end, that's all that matters. So here, God speaks a word of promise to this sad and, and despairing people who are devoid of hope. And the promise is for people in exile, people who find themselves in a strange and, and foreign pagan land and, and think that God has either given up on them or that God has turned against them or that God was just a cleverly designed myth that never really existed at all. Which one will we believe? Can, can we trust the promise for ourselves today? When we compare it against the other promises of the world, do we find that this promise actually is life-giving and good? Will it lead to truth? Will it lead to goodness and thriving? Can we move from despair to delight as we learn to lean into the promise and to find true freedom and true lasting joy? We're gonna look at four aspects of this promise today. We're gonna to see four different uh, parts of the promise that we see in Isaiah 40. We're gonna examine it and then we're gonna say, do we believe it? Look at the first one. We're gonna examine the context, the context of the promise. Look at verses one and two. Comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The context for this promise is really our own failure. The context for the promise is a people who have chosen their own comfort, their own stability, peace in their day, over what God is promising them. So he gives them this word of tender comfort. That's who our God is. We were talking in Sunday school today about how uh, God is, is gentle and gracious with us, even when we are hard-headed and stubborn and foolish and weak. The irony, again, is that Hezekiah was seeking his own comfort and it led to disaster. But when we choose God's promise over our own comfort, we get 
both. We find our true comfort in the Lord. Let's remember that God is a good, good father whose desire for us is comfort. He's not out to, to destroy us. Yes, there, there is judgment. Yes, when we choose our way over God's way, there are consequences. And God disciplines those whom he loves, thank God, but he doesn't leave us there. The, the focus of Christianity isn't about following the rules and, and being disciplined when you don't. It's not about being good enough to go to heaven. The heart of Christianity is about the amazing grace and goodness of God as expressed in Jesus Christ. How marvelous, how wonderful, as the choir just sang, is my Savior's love for me. And, and yes, God does discipline us because he loves us, but he never leaves us there. Yesterday we went on a hike and Isaiah said, Mom, are you ever going to leave me? We said, no, buddy, we're never going to leave you. We're never going to leave you. You're our child. We love you. That's how God feels towards his children. He never gives up on us. He's still our God. He says, my people, I'm your God. Our comfort doesn't ultimately depend on our ability to be faithful. It depends on God's ability to be faithful. Thank God. <laughs> the context of the promises is based in our inability and in God's perfect ability. Even in exile, he still refers to his people personally. He still calls them by the name of the ransacked city, Jerusalem. They will go home. They will be forgiven. They will receive grace for their sins, beauty for ashes, gladness for mourning, praise instead of despair. Next, the, the second aspect of the promise is the content. This is the heart of the passage, verses 3 to 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Another Handel's Messiah uh, song. And every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it is a guarantee the mouth of the Lord has said this. It will come to pass. There's really two uh, parts of this promise here in verses 3 to 5. The first part is about preparation because the Lord is coming. The first part is about getting ready. The fact that the Lord's road is straight and it's a highway, it's unmistakable, it's, it's, it's seen by everyone means it's definitely happening. And, and the pit of despair that so many have dwelled in for their whole lives will be raised up and the, the mountaintops of the prideful will be brought low. Justice will be done. When the Lord comes and ushers in his kingdom, everything changes. The kingdom of our God brings a whole new moral topography. It brings a whole new kind of landscape. And the second part of the promise is that when the Lord comes, his glory will be seen by everyone. And it will happen because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. 
Again, I, I don't really think we know what Isaiah is talking about here when he says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. We, we, we can't conceive of what that really means. And, and many of us don't really get fired up when we talk about the glory of God. We kind of yawn and, and roll our eyes. We can get all excited about talking about our favorite sports team or about you know, the, the cheeseburger at Gabby's or about whatever it is that you might really enjoy. But we talk about the glory of God and we just kinda go to sleep. We need to understand or try to understand how ultimately glorious and how ultimately beautiful the glory of God really is, that it's the most satisfying and most good thing in all the world. Jonathan Edwards famously wrote, God's purpose for my life is that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory and that these two are one passion. When we pursue God's great glory, we find our great joy. Again, it's like C.S. Lewis put it, we sin not because our desire for pleasure is too great, but because our desire for pleasure is too small. We resemble uh, a child in the slums making mud pies because we have no idea what is meant by a holiday at the beach. We can't imagine a beachside resort, so we settle for the little earthly fleeting pleasures. That's because we don't understand how good and great the glory of God really is. What is the glory of God? It's kind of hard to, to, to nail down, isn't it? The Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rod, I'm, I'm sure I said that wrong, Marcus, I'm sorry, he's out of town, I think, uh, this week, but he said the glory of God is the fiery radiance of God's very nature. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, they arrived at Mount Sinai, and God's glory was on the mountain like a devouring fire, is how Moses described it. We know that God's glory filled the temple several uh, hundred years later when Solomon prayed to dedicate the temple. The priest couldn't go in it because it was so filled with the glory of God. And when Jesus was born, remember what happened to those poor shepherds who were out keeping their flocks by night. They saw an angel, and what was with the angel? The glory of the Lord shone around, and they were terrified by the awesome, fiery radiance of the nature of God. God's very essence was ablaze to them. So how is God fulfilling that promise that everyone will see this? Have you seen the, the glory of God? Have you had an angel appear to you? I, I've never had an angel show up to me, but I'll tell you where I've seen the glory of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. We see it in his word. The Logos, the, the, the Word of God, John 1, 14, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. We read it every year at Christmas. And the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the Word is tabernacled among us. He moved into the neighborhood and set up his tent. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory in Jesus. Jesus peeled back the curtain and showed his inner circle. Remember this, Peter and James and John? He showed them a glimpse of God's glory, of his own glory, 
when he was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. But the way the gospel works is, is not always like fireworks. It's not like the glory of God always shows up like a big fireball. But sometimes the glory of God shows up in ways that we can't fathom, ways that we would never have thought of. Because the blazing glory of God was seen most clearly on the face of the Savior crucified and in an empty tomb. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room the, the night that he was about to die, he said he was about to be glorified as he was lifted up from the earth to die on a cross. And one day he's coming again. How? In glory. The Bible says that when Jesus returns, there's gonna be eternal sunshine in the new creation because of his glory. Look at Revelation uh, chapter 21, verse 23. The new Jerusalem, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. We're gonna be with Jesus and his glory will be an eternal sunshine. The glory of God is also being revealed to us right now. Did you know that? Through Jesus, through his word, and through the Spirit's work in us. I love how 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 puts it. And we all, with unveiled face, just like Evan said, approaching the throne of, of God with confidence, we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see the Trinity at work there showing us the glory of God, transforming us into the image of Christ. As we are matured in our walk with him, we become like him. So God kept his promise of, of revealing his glory at the first advent, right, when Jesus was born. He is now revealing his glory in his people to his church through his spirit's work in us. And he will consummate his promise to reveal his glory at the second advent, when Jesus comes again with a billion angels swirling behind him and says, enough, no more sin, the great reckoning is here. Nothing could be better for us than to live for the glory of God. That should be the purpose of our lives, by God's grace and for his glory. That's why we exist as people of God, as Woodmont Baptist Church. And, and that moves us into this third aspect of the promise, the confirmation of the promise. We're gonna go off air on TV, I'm sorry. You can watch us online, woodmontbaptist.com and, and see the rest of it. But two more points that'll go quick, I promise. Verse six, look at verse six. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass wither, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's your favorite verse, Becky. Is that right? That's what I heard. Your favorite verse. Ed was like, oh, this is going to be great. Becky's favorite verse. <laughs> the promise of God is a sure foundation in a fleeting life. You know, as a pastor, I, I, I don't like hospitals. I really don't. But it's part of my job to go and visit people. And it's an honor. It's such a privilege to be with people in these hours of, of need, these times of need. 
And, I, and I, 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 again, I don't like hospitals, but I, I, there's something beautiful and, and a great privilege about being there. Because every time I go, I, I leave with a sense of perspective, right? That my problems are not that important and that life is short. It's a mist, as James says, here today and gone tomorrow. It's, it's fleeting, but God's word is a sure foundation. We can confirm that promise because God's word never fails. When we step back and we, we try to see as God sees, we, we see that this earth, our story in this earth is such a quick thing. It's just the introduction to the larger story, to something more final, to something rooted in something that's more real and more truthful. And we can rest assured in the word of God. It's unfailing. And that word, you say, what is the word? Is it the Bible? Is it Jesus? Yes, it's, it's, it's the Bible. It's Jesus. But it's really the gospel. It's the good news of what God has done for us. How marvelous. How wonderful. Look at uh, this First Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 23 says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass. Hey, I've heard that before. And all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass wither and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then Peter explains to us what the word is. This word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. That will never fail. It will never end. The gospel is what goes into eternity. The gospel is the good news that God did not leave us alone, but that he so loved the world that he sent his only son, that he's making all things new. And one day he will sit on the throne in the new heavens and new earth and say, behold, I make all things new. That brings us to the final aspect of the promise, how it's conveyed across the world, how it's conveyed. Look at verses 9 through 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. That's the word of God, right? That'll never fail. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Evan, this reminds me of Gentle and Lowly, right? We've read this book, uh, Gentle and Lowly. Uh, by Dane Ortland, uh, such a, a great picture of how tender and gentle our God is that he carries us close to his chest. What a, what a beautiful picture of who our God is. I didn't, I didn't know that, that hymn that we sang, Aaron, earlier, My Shepherd Will Supply. I should know that, I feel like. Uh, what a beautiful text, My Shepherd Shall Supply My Need. It says uh, one word of his breath and my fears are uh, washed away or something like that. Beautiful uh, promise of who God is and how he cares for us. Why is that good news? The, the promise of the Lord with the glory of God is going to be proclaimed by everyone who believes it. And, and if this is indeed good news, then the right and loving thing for us to do is to share it with everyone that we can. 
God shows up with might. He says in verse 10, he overcomes our obstacles. He's a, a giver of reward, recompense to us. And he's a tender shepherd who gently cares for his flock. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. That's how he cares for us. And we get to share that message. We get to tell people this good news. In, in like 2012, Morgan and I uh, joined a CrossFit gym and got really into CrossFit. You couldn't tell now, but uh, back then we were, I, I was in great shape. And uh, we joined this, this gym and apparently there's this whole like subculture. Y'all know what I'm talking about in CrossFit? Uh, everyone who does CrossFit talks about it all the time. People who don't do CrossFit get really annoyed by the people who do CrossFit and, and they can't stop talking about it. Why can't they stop talking about it? It's because they found it to be good. They found it to be life-giving and they want to share it with others. It makes us happy to share with others things that we find to be life-giving and good. C.S. Lewis wrote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. We, we love to praise what we enjoy and talk about things that we enjoy because in giving that conveyance of our enjoyment, it completes the enjoyment. God reveals himself to us. God reveals his glory to us. Not so we can hoard it for ourselves, but so that we can genuinely, excitedly, lovingly give it away and tell others about it. You know, I just read this morning, they're building 100 new condos uh, down next to the Virtus uh, right here in, in Green Hills. And, you know, my first thought was, oh, traffic's going to be terrible. Oh, the view's going to be awful. And then I thought, these are people. These are souls. They're going to be right down the road from our church. How does God see those people? How ought we to see those souls that are moving into our neighborhood? We should long to be sharing with them the life-changing, life-giving truth of the gospel. So here's the question. Do we really believe this promise? That a life lived for God's glory, a life spent in pursuit of God's glory is a life that is not wasted, is a life that has eternal consequences for good, is a life that is filled with joy because in God's glory we find our joy. You know, I, I find my mind wondering when we're singing sometimes and some of the songs I don't know, but I have to remind my soul, praise the Lord, give him glory because he deserves it. And when I do that, I enjoy it because I love to give God glory in my heart. Are we betting our lives on this reality of the gospel? Is it the sure foundation that we believe it is? Is it really good news? to us who find ourselves as strangers in exile here in Nashville. Among all the promises that our world speaks to us, is this the one that actually under promises and over delivers? I believe it is. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel, that it never fails, that it's always right, it's always good, that it will continue. It's not just a flash in the pan. It's not some top 40 radio song that is gonna be gone in a couple weeks, but is actually a sure foundation for us to build our lives upon. The gospel 
will never end because you are making all things new and one day we will see it completed. God, your glory will be fully revealed in that time and we can't wait, God. We pray, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. But until that time, God, may we be transformed one degree to the next of glory as we are conformed to your image. Help us to live a, a life of discipleship that, that transforms us from the inside out through your Holy Spirit working in us, showing not only us your glory, but revealing your glory to the world through us. God, forgive us for, for giving delight, giving our praise to things that are, are, are good, things that you've given us, but things that are not ultimately glorious like you are. Teach us to delight in your glory more, O oh God. Forgive us for rolling our eyes when we hear about your glory. May we learn to passionately pursue it with all that we are and to find our joy in doing so. We pray this in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. We're going to move into a time of response now. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and received the free gift of salvation that comes by grace through faith in him, there's no better time to do so than right now. Maybe you're feeling that hound of heaven that's been pursuing you. You felt like God's been after your heart for some time now and you're ready to surrender and say, here I am, God, take all of me. Maybe you've just been far from the Lord and you realize that you have not been pursuing God's glory but your own. Maybe you're looking somewhere else for your joy and you realize that you want to put your trust in the gospel anew today. Maybe you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church and be a member here and be a part of what God's doing in this family of faith. We're not a perfect family, but no family is. Every family has its issues. But I do believe that God has something good in store for Woodmont Baptist Church over the next 80 years of our life. Now, if you want to be a part of that, we invite you to come now. Whatever it is that you want to do uh, in your heart at this time, let's stand and sing our hymn of response and let's deal with the Lord honestly as we come to him and sing, Savior like a shepherd, lead us.